Now, the reason I asked them to play that song this morning is we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to actually read the passage that was the original Jailhouse Rock. We'll read that God shook an entire prison with an earthquake so much that the doors flew open, the chains fell off of the prisoners. But just before we dive into the Bible, here's a quirky little story about Elvis actually getting ready to sing that song, Jailhouse Rock. Now, that song was written for the movie, Jailhouse Rock, where Elvis plays a wrongly accused convict who becomes a star when he gets out. Now, a lot of people say that's one of the best of his, how many did he make? 31 movies. Unbelievable. Now, I actually tried to watch an Elvis movie once. It was a little painful. I I made it about 15 minutes, and finally I gave up. I'm sorry, I've totally offended all the Elvis fans out there. Uh, But Jailhouse Rock has this famous scene where Elvis performs this song in an elaborate dance number. There's all these prisoners in their cells, all this kind of stuff. Now, what you may not know is that that score was the first one that two guys named Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, there they are, they wrote that song. And Rolling Stone interviewed Mike Stoller back in 2009, and they said, tell us how that all came to be. How How did the writing happen? And this is what he said. He said, we were living in Los Angeles, but we flew to New York, and they had booked us a hotel suite. We asked the hotel to put a piano in the room in case kind of the inspiration struck us. And there was a man named Gene Aberbach, and he and his brother Julian, there's Gene Aberbach, you got the arrow, there's Elvis, and uh, some other lady, I'm not sure who she is, but uh, Gene Aberbach and his brother Julian had come from Austria, they had emigrated to the United States, and they had done really well for themselves. At this point, they owned a company called Hill and Range Songs, and they walk in and they hand a script to these two songwriters. And so the songwriters promptly took the script, said thank you very much, and tossed it in the corner with a bunch of other stuff. And then they had a great time all week. He writes, he says, we were having a ball in New York, going to the theater, going to jazz clubs to hear Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. We possibly might have done too much drinking. On a Saturday morning, we'd been there about a week, Gene Aberbach knocks on the door and said in his very Austrian-Viennese accent, Well, boys, you will have my songs for the movie. And Jerry said, Don't worry, Gene, you'll have them. And Gene said, I know. He pushed a chair up against the door and he said, I'm going to take a nap. You guys are going to write my songs and when you're done, then we can all leave. So nobody's going anywhere until these songs were written. Well, it took him five hours And they actually wrote four songs, and the most famous of which is Jailhouse Rock. Now you know more than you ever wanted to know about that song. Well, as I said, uh, we are talking about the original Jailhouse Rock this morning. Not a rock concert in a prison, but God literally shaking the entire thing. Let's dive into the story in Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. 
She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God. They are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrate and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us, Romans to accept or practice. The crowd join in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in their inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. What a scene! What a scene! Paul and Silas are in the Macedonian city of Philippi. If you think Greece and kind of the northern area of Greece, that was where Philippi was. Paul and Silas are on their way to the place of prayer where local people met and prayed. A lot of Jewish people lived in the area and would come and pray there. And the day before, they had met a prominent businesswoman by the name of Lydia, and she had miraculously come to Christ. So Paul and Silas know that God is going to do something amazing in this Roman town of Philippi. And you can almost imagine them as they're walking along, the two of them together towards this place of prayer, and they kind of look at each other and say, well, Silas, what do you think? What's God going to do today? And then out of nowhere comes this slave girl. She was possibly a young woman. The text doesn't kind of tell us that, but probably a girl in her late teens. And she is possessed by a demon, by an evil spirit. And the demon inside of her automatically recognizes Paul and Silas for who they are. And they begin, she begins proclaiming, she was shouting, these are men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Not remarkable, even demons recognize the truth. It's a crazy kind of way. It was probably like free advertising for Paul and Silas. Now, one of my favorite bands is Switchfoot, and they have a great line from their song on their Nothing is Sound album. It says, we are crooked souls trying to stay up straight. Dry eyes in the pouring rain. The shadow proves the sunshine. The shadow proves the sunshine. If you think about it, it's true. You can't have a shadow without the sun up in the sky behind it. When evil pops its head up in such an obvious way, like this demon inside of this slave girl, it proves there is the opposite. Where there is darkness, there is light. Where there are demons, there are angels. Where Satan is alive and well, God is certainly there existing as well. In this case, the shadow goes the ultimate step and says it so blatantly. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. You know, we see the exact same phenomenon when Jesus encountered demonic spirits and people possessed. It says in Luke 4, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. 
They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. You see, these declarations by these evil spirits proclaiming the truth about Jesus, or in our passage today, proclaiming the truth about Paul and Silas, brings up a really important point. The demons knew the truth. The demon knew who the one true God Almighty was. The demon knew that Paul and Silas were God's servants. The demon could sense the presence of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. The demon even knew the truth of the gospel. He says, these guys are the ones who can tell you how to be saved. So here's my point. Knowing is not enough. The demon demon knew all the right information, but he was absolutely not saved. At the end of history, that demon will be banished out of God's presence for all eternity. Just having the right information in our heads doesn't mean we are truly saved by Jesus Christ. In order to be saved by the good news of the gospel, it needs to travel the 18 inches from our head to our heart. I love how the book of Romans puts it. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Now that brings us to an uncomfortable question for you and I today. Where are we at in our journey? Are we stuck at the beginning of the journey? Is it only in our heads? Do we say things like, well, yeah, I believe there is a God. Somebody had to design this world. Well, I, you know, I watch the service online. Maybe, maybe it makes my spouse happy when I do that. I think there's something positive I could get out of there. You know what? That's a good starting place. But we can't get stuck there. This passage won't let us do that. If we stop at a little bit of head knowledge, the cold hard truth is we actually aren't any better off than that demon. We know the truth, but we haven't accepted the truth. My challenge for you today, if that's where you are, if you sense you are stuck, maybe you're at the beginning of the journey, you're just wondering, is all of this true? Maybe you've been following Jesus for 20 years, but you realize you've gotten to a stuck place. Maybe you realize, man, my Christian faith is really in my head. It needs to get back down to my heart. My challenge today is for you to go for a walk, take some time, ponder that True belief, real faith can renew your life. Moving from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge that says, I've tried lots of stuff, nothing satisfies like Jesus. I've tried to cover up my pain with alcohol, with drugs, lots of different partners, but nothing and no one heals my heart like Jesus does. The point we need to come to is say, okay, Lord, I'm done pushing you aside. Come in, take control of my life. Rule my life. You tell me what to do, how to live. Because I've been running my own show, and so far it hasn't worked out that well. That's the place 
we need to come to. All right, so back to our story. We pick it up with our demonically possessed girl following Paul and Silas proclaiming, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you how to be saved. Paul finally has enough. He turns around and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. There's an amazing picture on a church in Rome, Italy. This is a fresco. And if you look at it carefully, you can see the demonically possessed slave girl on the ground, and you see a snake wrapped around her. The demon's kind of pictured as a snake coming out of there. What a brilliant fresco. Well, I entitled this first point, The Good Deed Gets Punished. And you probably heard the saying, No good deed goes unpunished. And that is certainly the case here. The power of Jesus Christ coming through Paul has just delivered this girl or young woman from bondage and enslavement to a demonic spirit. For the first time in her life, she is free. She is calm. She's at peace. They should have thrown Paul and Silas a party to thank them. But instead, they realize, her owners, that they have lost their money-making scheme. They seize Paul and Silas, drag them into the marketplace before those Roman magistrates. They whip the crowd up into a frenzy, and they declare, it says, they threw our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It's a ridiculous charge. All they did was free a young woman from a horrible life. Then the text says they were both stripped and severely beaten with rods. Now you may wonder, why was it rods? Why wasn't just one rod? Isn't that good enough? Not hurt enough? Why do they need multiple rods? Well, I actually want to show you what the Romans would use. This is called a fasci. And it was a series of rods, and you can see the leather straps that were bound around it. Now, the, the guys who actually administered the punishment, those were called the Roman praetors. They were the, the soldiers. And if the magistrates had said, okay, these people don't just deserve punishment, they deserve death, then that axe head would be attached. If it was just a severe beating, they would detach the axe head and just beat them with that collection of rods. That's why the text says that. Now, Super quick historical aside, Benito Mussolini, the leader of Italy during the Second World War, sided with the Nazis, and he called his party the Fascist Party, and that was his symbol, trying to bring back that ancient Roman symbol of punishment. That was a 10-second history lesson that was free of charge for you today. You are welcome. So poor Paul and Silas, totally innocent, but they receive a horrible beating for their good deed. The text doesn't tell us what happened to the slave girl, but presumably, because in those days, a slave in the Roman culture could earn enough money to buy their own freedom eventually. Now, God has miraculously let her encounter Paul and Silas. The demon is cast out of her. She's free spiritually. I suspect, the text doesn't tell us, but I suspect God provided her a way to get the resources to eventually get her physical freedom as well. So Paul and Silas are put in jail. Their feet are bound in stocks. This certainly has not been the best day. But God is about to turn a terrible, rotten, no good day into a miracle. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a excuse me, violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his household. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What a powerful scene. Paul and Silas have been severely beaten, thrown in prison, legs clamped in stocks. At midnight, they are still awake. It was probably so uncomfortable the way they were chained up and had their feet in those stocks. And what do they do? The other prisoners expected to hear Paul and Silas moaning and groaning and complaining, possibly cursing the the soldiers that had beaten them. Except that's not what they hear. Paul and Silas had their own little jailhouse rock worship concert going on. As Bible scholar F.F. Bruce points out, what sort of men were these? It must have been the odd impression which the two missionaries' behavior produced on the other prisoners that enabled them to dissuade these others from making their escape while the going was good when the earthquake hit. Now, if you think about it, the earthquake itself was a miracle because if the earthquake was too weak, it wouldn't have caused the doors to come open, wouldn't have allowed the chains to come out. If it was too strong, the whole thing would have collapsed, crushed Paul and Silas and everyone else inside. God engineered it so that it was just a perfect earthquake. So this earthquake occurs, wakes up the jailer. He quickly realizes what has happened. He hears all the cell doors swinging open, the chains falling off. Now for a man brought up to a Roman soldier's ideas of duty and discipline, there was only one course open. He has failed his duty. He has to kill himself. He draws his sword out, about to do himself in, when the Apostle Paul calls out, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer calls for lights, and unbelievably, no prisoners are missing. Unheard of. Out of the depths of his amazement and gratitude, he asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, our friend F.F. Bruce is helpful. How much he meant by his question, it would be difficult to say. He may have heard the fortune teller's announcement that these men had come to proclaim the way of salvation. Just what this salvation involved may not have been clear to him, but he was thoroughly shaken in soul as well as in body. And there was something about these two men that convinced him that they were the men who could show him the way to inward release and security. 
You know, God has done some beautiful symbolism here. The physical doors of the prison and the chains were, were released, setting the prisoners free. But in this guy's own soul, in the jailer's own soul, the prison doors of his heart have swung wide open. The jailer provides water and soap and, and cleanses the wounds on Paul and Silas's back. But at the exact same time, the jailer's own sin is being cleansed and washed away. Well, the good news of what has happened quickly spreads to the whole household. That would have involved the jailer's actual family, his wife and children, but it would have probably involved household servants as well. So stop and think about this for a second. This was a pretty bad circumstance for Paul and Silas, falsely accused, beaten, imprisoned, thrown in stocks. But look at the good that has been brought out of it so far. The slave girl has been freed from demonic possession. The jailer didn't commit suicide. He has come to faith in Jesus as well as his entire household. Now here's the point, Ocean View Community Church. We love and serve a Savior who continually brings silver linings out of awful situations. We can see the activity of the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, the plan of the will of God. All three persons of the Trinity are active in this story to bring freedom and faith. Theologian Gerald Bray says it like this. He says, Christ's work of atonement on the cross was a work of God within the Trinity, the Son who offered himself as a sacrifice to the Father. And it is the Holy Spirit who now makes that sacrifice effective in the life of the Christian. That's what God was doing in that moment for the jailer and his whole household. They would go on to become part of the church that God was planting there in Philippi. You know, a lot of people's favorite book in the second half of the Bible is the book of Philippians, the letter Paul wrote to that church that was started there. Pretty amazing series of events. Well, now we're ready to make the 2,000-year jump to you and I here as Canadians. You know, on top of the COVID-19 pandemic, you may be going through a tough time yourself. You may not be literally getting a beating by a Roman soldier or being thrown in stocks in jail, but some days it kind of feels like that. You may be going through marriage problems that feel so heavy so heart-crushing that you feel like you've gone through an emotional beating. Could God actually bring a silver lining out of such a difficult and hard time? Well, there have been lots of couples in the past that testify that in the midst of the difficult days of their marriage, in the midst of the really hard stuff, they finally reached out to Christ for help. They finally took their eyes off of each other's faults and started to see the good that Christ was doing in each other. These couples testify they being reminded how much Jesus had done for them in the giving of his very life. They decided they could sacrifice just a little bit of their own agenda so they could see their spouse succeed. When two people in a relationship stop focusing on their own personal rights, what's fair, what they deserve, and start to care more about the other person, that's when it begins to turn around. If your marriage is in crisis today, I want to encourage you that the God who rocked that jail 
freed a demon-possessed girl, brought an entire Roman family to faith, is still on the throne. He is still doing miracles, and he is more than capable of bringing hope and healing to your life and your relationships. Give me an amen in the comments if you agree. Now, if you're like me, there's been one part of this story that just kind of sits in the back of your mind and kind of bugs you. It's the injustice of the whole thing. Paul and Silas never even had a fair trial. Doesn't God care about the injustice of it? That's a great question. We're going to pick it up in verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. What got lost that day before and the angry mob shouting while Paul and Silas were falsely charged and beaten was any chance for Paul and Silas to declare that both of them were in fact Roman citizens. Why was that important? Well, historically, it was illegal to catch and beat a Roman citizen without a fair trial. Uh-oh, now we see a little justice. The magistrates that condemned Paul and Silas to a beating and then prison could now both lose their jobs if this news got out. I love Paul. No, we're not just going to slip away quietly here. If they want us to leave the prison and leave town, they got to come and escort this themselves. There's a little bit of humor in the text. It says, and they were alarmed. No kidding. They were freaking out. You know, the thought probably was for them, we might not just lose our jobs, we might be thrown in prison. So they came to appease them. Now, the text doesn't specifically tell us how that played out, but here's how I think it came. These guys kind of come to Paul and Silas, and they're like, hello, Mr. Paul. Hello, Mr. Silas. It's, it's really been great having you in our city. Um, here's a parting gift, a little basket we put together of local products if you need a ride out of town, we have a chariot waiting. It's a pretty different scene, isn't it? You know, I think that was actually really important for Paul and Silas because they knew that Jesus cared about the injustice that they had suffered. Jesus cared. He made things turn out very differently. Paul and Silas left that jail with their heads held high. You know what? There's a lot of injustice going on in our world right now. We have racism we're seeing in our neighbors to the south like we haven't seen since the early 1990s when the Rodney King riots happened in Los Angeles. We have racist police officers committing horrible crimes. We have great police officers 
being the unfair victims of scorn and prejudice. We have politicians making horrible decisions, inflaming situations. Right here at home, we have examples of injustice that we as Canadians need to grapple with. So does Jesus care about injustice? You bet he does. And as his followers, we should as well. It begins with asking the Holy Spirit of God to remove any part of racism from our own hearts. And then for us to actively treat other people well. It's one of the reasons I'm so proud of the Syrian refugee project that our church has undertaken in our community. These people are different race, different culture, and in the case of the Sruta family, a different religious faith. They're followers of Islam. Do those differences mean that we don't love and serve the foreigner and the immigrant like God has commanded us to do? Absolutely not. We need to do this act of justice for those who aren't in a position to be able to do it for themselves. And I want to say, well done, church. Well, we started with Elvis this morning. We made it to Paul and Silas. And in the end, God rocked the jail and justice prevailed. Paul and Silas weren't superhuman. They were people just like you and I. But you know what they did? They took a step of faith. They put their faith in action. They trusted the power and love of God the Father because of the name of the reputation of Jesus the Son and because of the ability of the Holy Spirit to transform the human heart. They were able to act fearlessly throughout this whole event. People of Ocean View, people in our community listening today, people watching in other provinces online, hear me loud and clear today. You can live a fearless life as well. Take that step of faith and trust. Who knows? Your jailhouse just might get rocked. Leave me an amen in the comments.